cracked concrete. Clarity and understanding that I had COVID and maybe I wasn't just being weak and miserable after all, it brought a high that wore off all too quickly. By the time I was dressed, I was stressed. And when I left the gym, this felt like a major setback. I retreated to the van to think this through. I didn't know how painful having COVID was, and I didn't know how difficult assimilating to van life was, but I did know that both simultaneously was brutal. I also knew that the chaos of the days and the plummeting temperatures at night were a bad recipe for getting healthy. The van was designed for polite campsites with cute fires and a shooting star, but not a place to beat a flu. I cringed at the thought of spending money on a hotel. I technically had a decent sized travel credit, thank you to real estate for instances like this, and I needed to book through an agency, but it was past business hours for the weekend. Over the last few days, I'd become inescapably aware that the extremely limited cash that I would have to survive on, at least for now, would become a limiting factor. The past couple of weeks, I'd been going to considerable lengths to save a dollar here and there at the grocery store and trying to conserve gas. I had sold 10 items of excess clothing to a thrift shop for $9.10. Those five bills and two coins clutched in my hand as I walked out of the store towards the van seemed to look up at me and say, so are you grateful for this tiny amount of money or are you embarrassed and disappointed that this $9 really matters? My quiet answer was yes to both. But I was proud that I was learning how to limbo. The goal was to keep my expenses low and last as long as the music plays. And now, despite my effort to conserve, I was contemplating spending 10 times that amount per night at a seedy hotel just for the superior thermal qualities and legal right to temporary geographic stability. A toilet and a shower were honestly just a bonus. Maybe I could tough it out, stick it out in the van without driving every day. I checked the weather forecast and saw that the next four days and nights would be brutally cold, by far the coldest yet. I glanced at Wilting Wilson, Wilson the Yellowed, the Uprooted, the Persistent. I stared at the heavy bags under my eyes in the rearview mirror. Schwa, the lonely, the sluggish, the worn. I would have to bite the bullet. We weren't getting any wiser out here with all the lost sleep and leaves. Days in had the lowest rates. $80 per night for a room with a double bed that was somehow both lumpy and saggy. An old mini fridge, the same color as the bed sheets, mostly white. I would have a microwave, a small TV, and a desk worn from decades of beer bottles and takeout and perhaps a few tears and heartfelt letters if anyone writes letters anymore. Most people try not to think about what's happened in that hotel room, but I bet there's been some wild happenings and I'd kind of like to know. And then I'd like to just confirm that the bedsheets were well cleaned or burned as appropriate. I brought in Wilson, my guitar, and I put the thin blue sleeping pad sideways across the bed to correct for the dramatically uneven topography. Adding the weighted blanket to replace the scratchy duvet was a well-intended attempt to create comfort, but it only pressed me deeper and further into the lumps and creases, the rolling hills beneath me. Breakfast would be complimentary, but the only thing that was remotely edible and not extremely artificial was raisin bran and apple juice. Was I 12 again? I wheeled my bike right beside the bed so that I could easily access the stove and the fridge and the van. I might be staying in a hotel, but I was still cooking my meals in a parking lot. Tuna sandwiches, beans with torn up deli ham thrown in, simple salads, bananas. No takeout, no restaurants. I was paying enough already. There were many things that I had brought that were so far proving totally useless, such as my bocce balls, board games, and my festival fanny pack. But I had to grin when any of those items became surprisingly useful. Settling into the room, I pulled out my completely unessential essential oils. 
One by one, I unscrewed the tops with my eyes closed and tried to guess what I was smelling. Cinnamon, eucalyptus, peppermint, tea tree, orange, bergamot. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, and I couldn't identify any of them. I felt like I was trying to find my way across a dark room, eyes straining for any glimmer of light. A blind nose, too, is almost claustrophobic. Uh, I fell onto the bed, surrounded by my dirty clothes piled in a corner, neglected bike within reach, almost unused podcast gear languishing beside the TV, and some tasteless, futile food sprawled across the desk paired with a half bottle of wine. I'd been gone nearly a month, and what had I done? I was on the edge of tears, my throat constricted, I was alone, I missed my old life, desperately. I could imagine my condo with everything in its right place, the wine rack holding the memories on the wall. Each bottle reminded me of a specific sunset, lover, or adventure. The thriving plants, the eccentric light fixtures glowing with warmth. The white rug contrasted nicely with the low, walnut coffee table, concrete floors, and a grey couch chair combo with the legs removed intentionally. I thought about how quickly I could have quality food delivered to that couch with money that came relatively easily, timing the delivery to coincide with me deciding what documentary or stand-up comedy special I'd watch next. I imagined how it felt to effortlessly shower, do laundry, or read one of a hundred books that I kept on my shelves. It's not that I took it for granted when I had it all. I was extraordinarily grateful knowing how good I had it, knowing how it could all disappear in a moment. I have two siblings in wheelchairs. I think every day about how amazing it is that I can walk. I knew life was easy, at least in those ways, and it was. I thought about dangerously charming and exuberant Madison. She lived across the street. I could always call her to chat or go for a walk or smoke weed, and we would talk about wild ideas that we had, share silly stories, and make plans for the weekend. I thought about Gibby, who I'd spent every Wednesday night with. We would inevitably play tennis or squash, but the real joy was the deep, analytical, and personal conversations about the perspective and philosophy we were each bringing to whatever circumstances we were confronting in life. Gibby was always a little steadier, more rational, and I was a little bit more unpredictable and dramatic. Look where living like that had gotten me now. I languished in the memories of warm summer days with Brit, where we'd take my family dog, Micah, to the riverbanks, have a picnic, listen to music. I loved Micah, and I missed him. He was always ready for an adventure, and I'd bring him downtown for three or four nights just to see what summer in the city looks like through his eyes. I had said goodbye to him, but he didn't know that it would be goodbye for a long time. I loved those days with Brit, and she was always so supportive of what I wanted to do, probably to a fault. I laid there craving company, stability, sunshine, and an always elusive sense of fulfillment. Tears carved my sullen cheeks when I thought of how strongly Matt and Paige had believed in me. They had given me their van, their encouragement, their sustained effort. I thought of the adoring note that Madison had slipped in my pocket before I left, in which she articulated so many wonderful things about me with such gratitude. Their enthusiastic optimism for what I could accomplish began to feel entirely misplaced. Madison's note was fiction, written to some idealized, fabricated character that I had a minimal chance of becoming. I had tricked them all into thinking that I was something special, the way that I had tricked myself. They had bet on the wrong horse. I was just out of the gates and already tripping over myself, kicking up a cloud of dust as I fell to pieces. This was such a mistake. I was a fool. Put this horse out of its misery. I wasn't meeting anyone. I wasn't writing for hours. My writing wasn't getting much traction, and plenty of friends that I thought would be interested didn't seem to care. I had no plans for how to meet fascinating people to record podcast episodes. Why would they want to talk to me anyways? 
The world is full of more qualified people to talk with. I had so little money and no prospects for immediate income. I couldn't even do 10 push-ups without feeling like someone was slipping a bag over my head. My entire body felt broken, tight, angry, defeated. I was spending money on a hotel I didn't want to be in, not doing the things that I did want to accomplish, and brutally aware of the comfortable, safe, and accomplished life that I had already left behind. Food was tasteless, but still required the same amount of effort to feed myself. I had been gone less than a month and was already confronting the embarrassing possibility of maybe having to return home like a failure. Despite the going away party and all kinds of kind words and support, I'd soon have no choice but to crawl back to my job, find a cheap place to live, and salvage whatever kind of life I could. It was like a divorce weeks after the wedding. Yeah, sorry everyone, it just didn't work out. Thank God nobody gave me gifts. I knew I was just getting started, but I didn't realize how steep the climb would be or how low I would have to start from, and I was completely unprepared. Yeah, this whole thing had been an irrational, emotional reaction to a toxic political divide, a meaningless protest against an unyielding and misguided society, where everyone else was too distracted by the symptoms and too impatient to examine the root causes. But I should just submit, comply, ignore. Maybe after a couple years, I would look back on this whole thing as some sort of psychotic meltdown and shake my head that nobody, including me, saw for what it really was. Congratulations, schwa. You like to write and have conversations? Those skills don't pay the bills, pal. Go home. For the first two days and nights, this reality swirled and hovered, a dark cloud above my bed. I laid there panicking over the foolishness of my actions and the shame of dragging my closest people through such turbulence for nothing. I drowned in despair for the overwhelming loss and the hopelessness of the future. Turning over every few minutes, back and forth, I couldn't get comfortable inside this treacherous body. I couldn't trust my own mind anymore. I shivered and pulled the weighted blanket over me. Sleep was the only solace, until the nightmare started. I want to tell you about this particular recurring dream, but it has no plot, no characters, no visuals, and it has haunted me since my earliest memories. I remember the terror of waking up as a small child, wondering why my mind would create such an experience for myself. While it became infrequent as I got older, I remember having it the same power over me when I was 19 in northern India, likely induced by the malaria pills. Darcy, my travel partner, he had thought I was losing my mind when I tried to tell him what had happened, but I didn't have the words. I probably hadn't had this dream in over a decade since then. What the dream lacks in structure, it makes up for in intensity. It is the feeling of cosmic betrayal where, upon death, you find out that nothing matters, that 2 plus 2 actually equals 13, but also orange, and by the way, that you are completely worthless. And there's some sort of larger invisible power that is taking great delight in revealing these revelations to me. It's likely that dreams like this are responsible for the human contrivance of a character such as Satan. It watches you fall backwards infinitely, except you are not falling because there's no such thing as falling, and there's nowhere to fall to. Nothing exists. You are nothing. This dream is nothing, and you will never trust anything again because everything is a lie. Silent terror ensues. Invariably, when I wake up in a panic, my heart racing and my eyes unable to focus, the feeling itself consumes me in consciousness, and it takes a long, long time to shake it all off. Hours, sometimes days. It's a harsh touch, an acidic smell, a hollow blackness. It is a particular chemical cocktail that intravenously corrupts my sleeping corpse, and a ghostly vapor that hangs in the air somewhere near the foot of my bed, and when I come to, it dares me to go back to sleep. 
Like the tedious and lethargic waking hours in this hotel prison, sleep was no longer safe from the fears and shame and horrors stitched with a dull needle into my brain. On the third day, as I sullenly contemplated what a relief dying might be, I got a text that Micah had died. His heart had basically given out, and that was that. What the fuck, man? I rolled over and tried to sleep again, to see if it was any better, and I hoped I would wake up in my condo, whether it was all real or not. Get me out of this and plug me into something, anything else. Make my mistakes disappear. Right then, Brit, breaking our agreed-upon silence, texted me to see if I was okay. She'd heard about Micah, and she knew that that would really affect me. I thought about calling her, but I didn't. I couldn't even explain why I wouldn't accept the offered comfort. I turned off my phone so I could loathe myself in peace. The next day, I noticed something that I'd been doing, mostly subconsciously, and it interested me. My head had been pounding for days. I drank water and tea, but I hadn't taken Advil. My Bluetooth speaker was on the desk, but I'd chosen silence. I'd poured the wine down the drain and I hadn't rolled a joint in days. Orgasms lost all appeal. I couldn't even be sure the TV worked because I never bothered looking for the remote. My eyes hurt too much to read anything. Food offered no comfort and I couldn't exercise. I didn't call my friends to tell them how low I was. Just me, foolish actions and failing dreams, boxed in by four dirty walls. What interested me was that I was seeking absolutely no comfort. Almost universally, when we don't feel good, we do things that make us feel good. But I wasn't doing any of those things. I had a variety of crutches available at my disposal that could have provided varying degrees and types of escape and relief from the gentle to the extreme, and I was just choosing to shun them all. I was sitting in the shit, gritting my aching teeth, taking it all head on, raw-dogging reality. It wasn't out of a sense of manliness or pride. I didn't feel any pride at all. And it wasn't to prove any point or test my limits. I was conceding any points and blatantly aware that this grief had no limits. I just didn't want any of those pleasant, empty distractions. By trying to feel good, I would be trying to escape, and I didn't want to escape. I began to piece together that this wasn't a story about how despairing and hopeless and lonely I was, but about how I was listening to those feelings and watching the realities they create. I was drowning in them and letting their flames consume me. I was stumbling in darkness, searching for the light switch, and wondering if the room even had lights. I acknowledged that I had been mapping the room, tracing the walls with my fingertips, memorizing everything. Now it began to make sense. I saw how those voices had become so overwhelming, like spilled ink. They were leaking from the present circumstance into the past regrets and the future worries, expanding the narrative until it convinced me of its unavoidable truth, blotting out whatever other words were previously written. I may have become extremely miserable, but I was listening even closer to the misery with full attention and feeling all the pain of the stories behind it. I am unwanted. I am stupid. I will fail, and I am failing right now. I was wrong for destroying my life, and I was doing it for flimsy reasons. In my inadvertent listening, though, I had been gullible. I had fallen for the con. I had invited the hallucination into my home as reality and offered it tea. Still crumpled in a ball on the bed, I asked myself another question, but this time consciously. Do I want to go home? Is that what I want? Should we pack it all up and say we tried? Is that what you'd rather do? Answer the fucking question. No, I said out loud to myself. My aching eyes were still closed. I don't want to go home. I still choose this. This is part of it. I can learn from this. I want to solve this puzzle. I welcome this struggle. 
I didn't come here to have fun. I put on my shoes, toque, gloves, made some liquor spiced tea, and walked around a nearby pond. As I stared across the half-frozen water with reeds piercing through it at its shores, it was blatantly obvious that the entire godforsaken reality was just a merciless collection of well-worn emotions responding to old fears and tired narratives. I could see what was happening. These stories were just puppets on frayed strings dancing clumsily on a stage behind my eyes, and the scissors were in my hands. I could cut the threads and extract the noisy, flailing marionettes whenever I was ready. I had been trapped in a mental prison until I remembered that the bars existed only in my head. I walked slowly, my breath leaving rattling warm chest to condense, and in return I collected new air filled with invisible snowflakes inside to thaw. One of the purest, simplest ways to recenter, to peel apart the emotions and the context, to truly feel and feel good, is to go walk outside. Along a river, across a hill, threading through trees, literally anywhere will do. Some people go to the bar to blow off steam, or we go for a drive or hit the gym. But walking in nature is the OG, the purest drug, the essence of what every other form of escape feebly assimilates. For hundreds of thousands of years during caveman conflicts and tribal spats, we would take off through the trees. Our eyes would dart back and forth as we scanned the world around us, our feet taking turns planting themselves in the firm, eternal earth that we find ourselves on, swirling through space. Moving at a slow pace across the planet is literally one of the simplest things we can do, so deeply ingrained in our evolutionary development. Slow steps and deep breaths in nature remind us that we are small, that our problems are smaller, and more importantly, that there are bigger things that deserve our attention. As the world turns and we move across it, we can see how everything is connected, valuable, and interdependent on the well-being of everything else. We can look to the stars and revel in the infinite tenacity of the universe. We can dizzy ourselves with the endless attention of the moon. We can see a bird and wonder how its hollow bones take flight. We can marvel at the life cycle of a single blade of grass. By expanding our perspective, we can see how our problems are a function of our subjectivity. A walk like this brings you home. Absolutely none of the circumstances had changed. My bank account, my sick body, the meager number of accomplishments, that was all still the same. But I identified the emotions, acknowledged that my emotions were actually a response to the narrative, a narrative that I had accidentally given weight and meaning. I now saw that my reality was separate from those stories. Really, I had just the here and the now, the who I am and the what I have. I then started getting curious about what I would like to accomplish next and how I would get there. This shift is so important. We've all experienced it. Imagine plucking yourself out of a river by the nape of your neck, hanging there. Suddenly you can see the rapids you've been fighting. As you hang limp and drip dry, you realize the circumstances are simpler than your reaction to them. You can see that you don't have all the facts to commit to your conclusions. You remember that your experience is emotions, but that these emotions are not you. Emotions are entirely subjective, malleable, and most importantly, they are all temporary and fleeting. They can fall off your face like cheap sunglasses if you let them, and you can put on new ones instead. This shift can take weeks or years, but it can also, with training, happen in days and minutes too. New colors, new details, new perspectives, they're always available. 
Once you realize you're stuck in a story, you're not stuck anymore. Now you have a choice. Now you can choose any other narrative you please. You have leveled up. How will this change how you swim? I sat and walked in the discomfort at maximum volume for four days before I pulled out a piece of paper and started brainstorming. If I needed to find ways to make money and save money, and if I wanted to contribute to others, and if I needed to take better care of my body on the road, and if I would rather struggle through this than turn around, then what was the solution? What's the path forward to at least get me started? It felt like a game again, a puzzle that needed to be solved. A weak smile cracked across my face. Finally, I was seeing a shift back to curiosity, gratitude, acceptance, and witnessing the process energized me. I was going to be okay. The solution to the puzzle felt tentative but encouraging. I decided to get back on couch surfing and that whoever agreed to host me, I would offer wellness and reflective sessions, a combination of meditation, stretching, reflective exercises, and simple interpersonal and reflective frameworks that I had memorized or created. I could build the experience around their needs, share what I know, and learn from what they would naturally respond with. This would provide a simple framework for getting past the small talk and encouraging participation. I would leverage the free nature of couch surfing to save money and meet people, and I would still get to keep practicing my skills and simultaneously contributing to the world around me. The more I thought about doing this, the more I loved it. I could visualize the whole thing, showing up with my core values cards, discussing love languages, conflict resolution strategies, unrolling the yoga mat, guided meditations, and all the rest of it just to see what they were interested in exploring. Hell, if they wanted to do mushrooms and go deeper, then we go deeper. I would benefit from this kind of exploratory, reflective, healthy environment, and so would they. And in the background, I would keep working on my book for eventual publication and sale. I was aware that most of how I operate is on the basis of intuition and innate wisdom that is already embedded within everyone. All of my writing comes from personal experience and observation, and it resonates with others only because we are all having so many of the same experiences. I don't have any formal training in wellness or reflection, but I also reminded myself that 200 years ago, there was no such thing as formal training in fields that are now compartmentalized, sterile, formulaic, and clogged with certifications. And yet, if you can believe it, there were still people supporting each other, taking deep breaths, asking big questions, and contributing knowledge to the collective through writing and conversation for thousands of years. This isn't surgery. We are exploring what resonates together. I am a student of the human experience, and so my teacher is always available, and I take better notes now than I ever did in school. I would be learning and giving as I go a far more organic and contributive approach. This whole idea gave me an actionable framework, and I got excited. I planned out six different wellness sessions for different needs. Whether someone wanted to recharge, get focused, get motivated, face fears, or dig deeper, I'd have some ways to help expand their perspective and at least create some space for a capable conversation. Something to get them started, something that might stick, something that they could take to the rest of their lives, to their therapist, to their lovers. And if I showed up and didn't have ideas that address their situation, I knew that listening and helping them find the words can be one of the most profound ways to support others, and I would learn from that as a result. Even if I was just asking questions, I was confident that I could leave anyone better off when they chose to open up. 
And it's not like I would be bringing anything wildly new exactly. I mean, you read a couple books by Aristotle and Pema Chodron, throw in a little Tony Robbins and some of Stephen Covey's highly effective habits, and you figure out pretty quickly that everyone you find wise and inspiring is basically stating the same 10 or 20 truisms in unique words, applied to different contexts with various analogies and captivating stories. Slow down, stay present, choose love, work smart and then hard. Put your own oxygen mask on before assisting others. As a society, we've been dealing with the same problems and ignoring the resonant answers for millennia, but individuals transform themselves every day. Unlike on a societal level, focusing on the core issues right away instead of thinking about the symptoms and the context, it can lead to a way quicker consensus with yourself when you are the sole voter. I was no expert, but I knew my strengths lay in extracting insights, mostly by listening closely to the true meanings of what people were saying themselves. We could connect dots and find words that seem resonant and yet obvious, which makes them useful. I'm not an expert on any topic, really, but I can quickly make sense of whatever frustrations people voice to me and help identify hidden limiting beliefs, undeveloped gifts, and actionable strategies. I can be a sounding board. I can ask questions and then expand the introspective mind and regurgitate the answers I hear into different words, twisting them like a Rubik's Cube into a slightly different pattern. I can pull from thousands of life experiences that have been shared with me in confidence to find resonant strategies that could work for someone new in a similar situation. And after it all, if the conversation was really thought provoking, inspiring or frustrating, we could pull out the microphones and share what we discovered together. This sounded useful, yet difficult. It sounded exciting, and yet daunting. And come to think of it, how I was envisioning I would show up to the world was deeply reminiscent of how Madison described to me in her note. I sat there consumed by grief and despair without mercy or respite until I managed to extricate myself from the narrative, reframe my perspective, and generate an exciting solution. Equally as importantly, I relied on no comfort from anyone except myself and a flock of birds at the pond to navigate my way back to confidence. While it is normal and important to rely on others, it is still important to be emotionally self-sufficient, internally validated. I was learning how to soothe myself while taking the challenges and narratives head on. My body was healing and my mind was tending to its own mess. I was returning to my village from the darkest journey through the forests. Demon carcasses held limp in my arms. It was a rite of passage to learn to trust myself, to restore my own confidence, to conquer my own fears, to solve my own problems. I was empowered to affirm that even in the darkest moments of doubt and anxiety, I was still committed to wherever this journey led me. I was alive, powerful. I was excited for the future. When Hopper was carefully packed and the room was empty, I turned on the van for the first time in four days and smiled. It was good to be back on the road. I hadn't yet offered any wellness sessions or reflective sessions to my requests on couch surfing, but I'd lined up someone to stay with in Denver anyways. I looked forward to the drive south, a continuation of warm nights indoors with my host, Agati. I'd tell him about my ideas and see if he was interested in trying any of it. I was unsure how to approach it all, but eager to keep working it over in my mind and practice just to see what it would evolve into. It was enough to get started, enough to keep going. After having dragged myself up from fear to flow state, and just before I hit the road, recharged, I wrote this quick post for my Instagram account, Words by Schwa. I wonder, would you sit just a little longer in discomfort and despair if you knew this wasn't just a wrong turn and that this road could take you there? 
When I confront my need for solitude, I confront loneliness. When I confront my desire for contribution, I confront purposelessness. When I confront my hope for connection, I confront my fear of rejection. When I confront my desire for independence, I confront my feelings of helplessness. When I push myself to make a plan, I am pulled into awareness of what I cannot control. When I, so too, does life. But if I'm going to strengthen my foundations, then I'm going to have to get down on my hands and knees and start filling cracks where I hoped I didn't have them. And that means resting with my knees on the concrete hunched over with my dreams of building taller, merely a burden across my aching back. If I choose to dig deeper, then whatever crawls out of that hole shall be given the warmest of welcomes. Snakes, fears, scorpions, and setbacks. I asked for this, damn it. Today I do not seek to shine light on my darkness, but to sit in it, in the cellars of my soul. Listening to the drip drip of forgotten leaks, to the slither and patter of skins and feet across cracked concrete. Let me meet. What haunts my house, I'll be up soon enough.